I'm Frank Rossi, and from TurfNet Radio, this is Frankly Speaking. We're talking government relations today with the leadership of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, Government Affairs Group, Hava McKeel, with Bob Hyland and Michael Lee. The golf industry, like many major economically important industries, have recognized the value of active participation in the political process, including policy and regulation that might impact the game of golf and, in turn, the golf turf industry. So, it's sport and recreational activities that touches labor and accessibility issues embodied in the American Disability Act. And it's land management, much like farming, where water, fertilizer, and pesticides are used and regulated, as well as the complicated web of labor, especially uh, as it touches the immigration issue, which is a, a fairly lively topic these days. There are local issues such as the ban in Portland, Maine, uh, very recently where pesticides were banned in the city uh, of Portland. Uh, the golf course was excluded from that. That issue popped up previously in Montgomery County and, of course, in New York many, many times. Regional issues, of course, like the Chesapeake Bay Initiative that touches a lot of states in the Delmarva Peninsula. And national issues such as the current push to fund the Pesticide Registration Improvement Extension Act of 2018. I believe it's going on Twitter as hashtag 4PRIA4. So, of course, the volatile nature of politics in the U.S. these days makes it all that more unpredictable and necessary to have strong relationships with leaders and regulators. For the latest info in the relationship building and golf turf, we rely on the smartest person in the golf turf industry, Hava McKeel, Director of Government Affairs and her team at GCSA. Hava, you have that official label now as the smartest person in the turf industry. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. Oh, thank you, Frank, for having us and our team, and I'm a little bit nervous about that title. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get to many of the projects and programs that GCSA offers. Uh, but I want to start by talking about working in government affairs these days, uh, especially the impact that social media has had on this process. So let, let's start there. How has uh, social media, which as seems to be a popular activity of the current leader of our country, how has that impacted your work these days? Absolutely. Um, well, Frank, again, uh, just having been around here for 20 years advocating on behalf of the profession, I've, I've definitely seen a, a change in direction in terms of advocacy and outreach to policymakers through social media. So we've gone beyond the traditional reach with, um, you know, visits in office, congressional offices or offices even at the state level, um, beyond letter writing campaigns call campaigns and some of your more traditional advocacy uh, methods of outreach. And now we've really um, seen how social media can really change the trajectory of an issue, um, good or bad. Mm -hmm. So um, you have a whole lot more people out there um, in the public space that have the ability to put a quick Twitter post out and weigh in with their member of Congress. Um, in 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 out in, in cyberspace, and um, it may even be individuals that aren't familiar as much with the issue, but they they can quickly put a, a Twitter post out there. So I have seen over the course of about the last ten years um, different ad, different advocacy issues in Washington kind of. Um, some died rather quickly, and some were enhanced by the presence of social media. I, I certainly know that we belong to several national coalitions that are tied to the issues in our priority issues agenda. And those coalition partners of ours um, that we work with, when they sort of put the marching orders out for um, support needed for drug lobbying or for grassroots support in particular, that's one of the asks um, that is part of, of the effort. So it's not only put out, you know, your traditional action alerts and your talking points to, to do outreach with of lawmakers, but there's a lot of action alerts out there now that say, okay, we also need a social media component to this. We, we need your members to use this hashtag and weigh in with their members of Congress. I think that every member of Congress at this point has um, – social media coming out of their office, whether it's a Facebook page, a Twitter account, and they have staff in their offices that are monitoring this chatter and this noise. 
and they're using that and weigh, you know, weighing in with matters and, uh, you know, how loud is the volume out there in support or opposition to something, and, and they're listening not just to the phone calls coming in, but they're looking, they're, they're monitoring um, all that Twitter chatter and, and what's going on out in, in the social realm. Right, so right. We're, we're incorporating it more and more into the daily work that we do here out of GCSA headquarters, and uh, maybe I can have uh, Michael share with you sort of an example of, of uh, where that's taking place. Okay, so Hava, you, you gave a very thorough answer there about how not only do you see it being influential one way or the other, but how uh, campaigns that we're part of with other groups, it's a part and parcel of a major way to contact your legislators and do that interaction. And so as we do ask you, Michael, to get involved, I guess my question to you as the, you know, the grassroots guy from my perspective, uh, is this part of the grassroots ambassador training that you're giving them some information about how to handle social media and influence the legislators? Well, it is, Frank, and that's a great question. Um, you know, as Hava mentioned, social media is very much a part of the advocacy realm these days, and so it is something we coach our ambassadors on a little bit. We also coach our attendees at National Golf Day on the use of social media. So um, when you're on the Hill, when you're having meetings with members of Congress and the staff who work for them, you know, what's the best way to use social media? What's appropriate? What is, what is everyone comfortable with? Um, and so, like Hava said, there's a lot of effective ways of using social media when it comes to um, lobbying and legislation. Uh, we had a bunch of superintendents that were very active on this um, on this Twitter campaign that you mentioned, Frank, uh, the hashtag 4PREA4 campaign that's been going on. Um, a lot of great comments weighing in um, by superintendents, and so we, we were excited to see them participate in that because it is such a critical piece of legislation for uh, for multiple industries, but are certainly included. So okay. one example I would I would um, share with you, if you just think back to the community service project last year at National Golf Day, and there's so many great posts going on uh, throughout that four-hour uh, project on, on um, the National Mall, and I think for a while we were even trending on Twitter with the hashtag uh, NGD17 um, hashtag that was used. So we're going to have that going again this year, great opportunity for social media use, and we're really looking forward to it. Yeah, and so, Bob, let me loop you in on this because you're, you're the man in Washington. You know, is it your sense that these people, especially the young people that work for the politicians in many cases, they're on their phones like crazy looking at social media, even if, you know, an elderly legislator, um, you know, might not be active themselves. Certainly somebody like, you know, Kamala Harris and, and certainly the president and other many other political leaders. I'm sure they all have a Twitter handle uh, and I'm sure it's run by other people, uh, not just them. Um, do you do you see it as part of the conversation when you're walking around uh, meeting with people? Yes, yes, I do. I do, Frank. And I will tell you that it, things have changed. I was a former Senate staffer, and when I worked on the Hill, it was very unusual to be asked to pose for a picture. And we didn't have social media then, and I'm, I'm not talking that long ago either. And now it's when you walk into a member's office and you're talking to either the member of the Congress or the staff, they anticipate that you're going to ask them to put a picture on. They're going to give you the the tag and the for the for their for their handle as well and they're going to tell you how to include that in there and they're going to happily pose for pictures when many times before it was never even a question we never did that sort of thing so the times have indeed changed and um, when I go there now even to do direct lobbying I do those pictures as well I post it for our members to see and and they often retweet them and post them for their constituents as well. So, so it is really a, a national conversation. The, the question is, you know, how many are participating? And, you know, the, the, the way we participate in this particular endeavor, I, I think for us is important as well. But I don't want to spend any more time on that. It's, it's sort of clear to me that, you know, this is a part of our lives now in a way that we wouldn't have imagined years ago. And... I think that influence, uh, maybe if you're in favor of something, it could positively influence it. If you're uh, against something, um, you, you could see where it, where you know, if you don't want to see something happen, you could see a negative uh, influence there as well. But Hava, let's come back to you. The big date is here. Ten years in, 
to the National Golf Day, which I'm going to let you uh, do the logistics of date and planning and time and all the information at wearegolf.org, I believe. So let's start with that. It's a 10-year anniversary. Last year, we were airifying and, and doing the community service project. Um, I believe there's you have something else cooked up your sleeve from what I heard as a preview at the golf industry show in San Antonio. So why don't you give us the skinny on the We Are Golf Day uh, on the Hill? Yes, absolutely. And Frank, this year, 2018, will be our 11th National Golf Day event. So we felt we did celebrate our 10-year anniversary last year, and um, we put that community service project together. Uh, for that 10, 10th year anniversary, it was so successful that um, there was a groundswell of support for us to continue doing that again. So if you could be in my office right now, you'd see papers lined up all over my desk, and they all have to do with pulling off this major event, which takes place April the 24th and 25th. So we're about six weeks away from that. Now, our team even hosts a government affairs committee meeting in advance of National Golf Day, so we're working on that, that committee meeting preparations as well right now. But in terms of National Golf Day, most of our participants are coming in on Monday evening for a community service project training, and then that will lead into a GCSAA delegation party that we host Monday night. Tuesday, we'll kick off the community service project at the National Mall from 8 to noon. And we have the wonderful Mid-Atlantic Chapter board members. We've got a few board members this year from the Virginia Chapter and even the Eastern Shore Chapter coming to help us pull off some incredible turf restoration projects. Last time I checked, we had over 160 people signed up for the community service project, which is a lot more people coming than last year, which was around 100. So we've decided to add in some special projects this year. We're doing sod installation around the National Mall. Last year, if you're familiar with Washington, we only went from 3rd Street to 7th Street. Well, this year we're going from 3rd Street all the way to 14th Street. What that means is we're going to be doing projects between the U.S. Capitol Building and the Washington Monument. Well, I'm sure that Michael Stakowitz, the turf specialist for the National Park Service and a very active user on Twitter, uh, very much connecting the turf industry uh, to his work uh, with the National Park Service. He's the only turf specialist in the entire National Park Service. So um, I know he appreciates you guys laying some sod for him that not only saves him from having to do it, <laughs> but also um, gives him a new surface to provide the, the many visitors there. Now, in addition, Hava, you, you're not only outside with the community service project, but then you go and you start uh, meeting with the uh, folks on the issues. Yes. Yes, so our lobby day is all day Wednesday, April the 25th, on Capitol Hill. The night before, we have training. We've got a special keynote speaker this year. We've never had one of those before. We're bringing in Brett Baer, the chief political correspondent from Fox News, who's going to do his sort of crystal ball on what's going in Washington and how he sees the midterm elections playing out. That evening, we'll all be bussed out to the Capitol Visitor Center will host, the golf industry will host a congressional reception, which we're all looking forward to. And then finally, we've got our pep rally to kick off our lobby day on Wednesday. We'll have over 130 people going to Capitol Hill to have meetings with their senators and their House representatives. And we'll be going in different groups uh, paired up by state. And it's just a phenomenal day, Frank, to go in and share all the positive messages about what the golf industry is doing. We've got some exciting issues lined up um, to talk about that day, and we're going to have some really exciting new exhibits in the Rayburn foyer as well. So I want to actually make the transition, Hava. Thank you for saying that, those issues, right? So you're there for National Golf Day. Now you have an opportunity with, with, with the, the people that, are, of course, have some experience in, in dealing with the uh, people at this level, whether you're meeting with the aides or, or the uh, legislators themselves. 
Um, but they're going to talk about the issues. And as you guys outline them, as I see them, you've got them as water, pesticides, fertilizers, labor, and, and ADA. And it also sounds like one of the things this day highlights uh, is the economic value of golf. It seems that are um, the one of the messages that resonates in Washington is the jobs message, is the the tax revenue, is the philanthropy, uh, is the integrity and character uh, associated uh, with the game. So so it seems like you really are uh, promoting uh, golf and talking about the value of it, not just your strategic issues. Yes, I mean golf as an economic engine for the country is something that remains an important issue to talk about every time we meet with members of Congress and staff. I mean, the the tax revenue it generates, the jobs it generates for the economy are key and important drivers. I mean, we've been very proud to make that argument with people when we talk about the issues that are impacting us. And what brings the message home on National Golf Day is you're not getting someone like, you're not just getting someone like myself to say it. But you're bringing people in from their own communities, people they know, golf facilities they know well, to talk about their history. In many cases, these golf facilities have been around for quite a long time and are very, very much important to their communities in terms of the, in terms of the economic benefits they bring. So it, makes, it takes that saying, all politics and lo- is local, and drives it home yeah. when we people in. So it's a lot of credit for them to come up there to Washington, to take time off of their jobs, to come down to D.C. to do this sort of thing. And um, I can tell you that it it does it does leave an impact in the minds of the members of Congress and staff. Yeah, because I'm I'm thinking out loud here, Bob, as we uh, you know, we take this last question before we go to a message from our sponsors. It's 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 sort of the image that you got to believe many people have about golf. Um, you know, it's a it's a white guy thing. It's an elitist thing. Uh, certainly, the, you know, heavy user of water, pesticides and nutrients. And I wonder, do you ever have issues where, um, you, you know, or, or pe- meetings that you're trying to have with folks that you know are going to have uh, that negative perception uh, that you and I know, I'm sure all of us on this know, uh, exists about golf. Do Are there some politicians um, that sort of shy away from associating themselves uh, with our sport and industry? And I don't mean to name them out other than, you know, yes, they're there, and we here's how we try to approach it with them. Yes, they're there. I think it's a question more of lack of knowledge, rather than anything deliberate. And when I do talk to those people, I tell them, did you know that one in 75 jobs in the United States is impacted by the golf industry? Do you know that $55.6 billion in wage income comes to, the, comes to the United States economy from that and the total economic impact of golf, direct, indirect, $176.8 billion? It's, yeah, it, it's a powerhouse. There's no doubt about it. And certainly... Um, you know, that resonates with with folks, uh, you know, as they're uh, imagining issues, because if, if there's nothing that I think these folks pay attention to from their constituents, it's it's jobs and employment. And, and I think we know that a, a well-employed uh, citizenry, you know, actively involved in some form of purposeful work is just going to function better uh, than, you know, unemployment rates uh, into the double digits. So we have just gotten started here on Frankly Speaking. I'm with the GCSAA's Government Affairs Office, Hava McKeel, Bob Hyland, and Michael Lee. We'll be right back on Frankly Speaking. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi on the TurfNet Radio Network. I'm joined today by GCSA's Government Affairs Office, Hava McKeel, Bob Hyland, and Michael Lee. Regular guests, I'm happy to say, on Frankly Speaking. This is the third or fourth time you guys have been with us a while. I'm, I'm very interested in how uh, politics uh, affect our industry. I, I grew up uh, in the New York metropolitan area. My dad drove a train in and out of Manhattan. He came home with about 15 different newspapers every day and six different trench coats that the guys left on the train. And talking about politics was uh, always something he liked to do. He was a uh, dyed-in-the-wool Hubert Humphrey guy, Harry Truman guy uh, from way back. And so uh, never enough about me. Let's transition to the rest of Golf Day, National Golf Day, Hava. And we brought up a couple of issues uh, that we want to return to that you're going to address this uh, golf, National Golf Day uh, regarding money for turf research, uh, the BMPs, and the First Green program. So talk to us about those three programs and how you're advocating for them. Absolutely. So every year when we're trying to pull together um, the issues that we're going to be lobbying on or talking about with our members of Congress, we're always looking for some fresh, time, timely topics that also demonstrate um, our environmental stewardship as an industry. So we've made that as a focal point for the 2018 National Golf Day event. And starting with, um, for the first time ever, our entire We Are Golf Coalition will be focused on the National Turfgrass Federation Initiative. This is an initiative that's been going on for a while on Capitol Hill, but we're going to sort of help um, help with the cause. And what we're trying to do is to explain to members of Congress to demonstrate how important that turf grass is just in general. I know the USDA um, considers it a specialty crop, and we're hoping that we can uh, demonstrate the need for federal additional federal turf grass dollars to go towards more research to help our industries find um, like grass types and new turf grass yes. species that we can put down on golf courses that will be more drought tolerant and, yes. or you uh, use less inputs. Yes. I mean, turf comprises 60 million acres, and it's the fourth largest crop in the United States. So we want to talk about that message and how we can help be a solution to some of the environmental challenges that we face across the country. We also um, have the Best Management Practice Program, uh, BMP's 50 by 2020 initiative going on, and we are working with our states, all 50 states, to meet our aggressive goal of having best management practices in all 50 states by 2020. We're well on our way towards that goal, and for the first time ever at this lobby day, we're going to create a one-pager for our member of Congress to look at and their staff on this special initiative and, and how, again, we're putting a flag in the ground on professional land management. And so that'll be a great conversation for us to have with our policymakers. Finally, in the area of environmental stewardship, again, we're hoping to showcase the FIRST Green Program, which provides STEM ed education out on golf courses using our golf courses as learning labs bringing, you know, students out onto the golf course to learn about environmental stewardship. And we're hoping to have them exhibit and working on them exhibiting in the Rayburn House office building in our big We Are Golf um, exhibit that goes on all day as part of Lobby Day. So I know a lot of that's right up your alley. You're our National Environmental Award winner. Congratulations again. <laughs> yes. But we're going to be talking about golf and the environment on National Golf Day. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. And that really does touch on a number of things. One is, you know, I work at a land-grant institution, and we have seen a steady decline in public support. And the value of that public support cannot be understated when you – Get public support for issues like environmental issues. It takes away some of the bias that the public associates with the USGA funding it or a Syngenta funding it or a company funding it. That if it's if or even the GCSAA funding it, right, that 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 there's something about that research done with public funds for the public good, not just uh, for golf, because, of course, some of that's going on at University of Minnesota right now with the science of the green and Brian Horgan's natural capital project with Parker Anderson. So lots of good stuff there in the land grants, the BMPs, of course, 
Jesus are near and dear to my heart. I love that uh, uh, that analogy of putting the stake in the ground. I do think uh, we do have to take the high ground. Uh, and I do think that no matter what happens in Washington, and we could we could hear from Bob about what the heck's going on over at the EPA in a minute. But, you know, my sense is the the local advocacy around these issues is not going to stop. And the BMPs are is one proactive, progressive way to use the science we have available to integrate it into the management. And then the first green thing goes back to, you know, the love we have for making sure Pete kids uh, understand the outdoors and the value that golf provides. So it looks like we can put a bow for now on National Golf Day. And Bob, can I pivot to you on the status of the EPA? Do you feel comfortable? Um, my sense from from the peanut gallery is that, you know, committees aren't meeting. Uh, there's a lot of empty chairs uh, in that building. Um, and right now we're probably getting a chance to really see um, how big a bureaucracy we built uh, in there and how much we miss because I got to believe that with committees not meeting and uh, people not sitting in chairs in the EPA, that uh, some just getting some of the normal work done uh, isn't happening. So we'll get a look at maybe how important that work was. What's going on over at the EPA? You got any thoughts there? Well, there's a big dysfunctional mindset that, that that's going on here, which is in terms of not being able for Congress, not being able to agree in a bipartisan way how to fund the federal government, including the Environmental Protection Agency. I, I mean, we're right now, we're hoping to get a spending bill done by the end of next week, the 23rd, that should have been done last October 1st. And <laughs> so every agency, including the EPA, is on a temporary spending bill, uh, a continuing resolution process where they can't do anything long-term because Congress won't give them a long-term budget. Procrastination is very rampant in this in this capital of ours. Hmm. But at the agency itself, we do have a success story. <clears throat> the the PREA program, the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act. What it did was to ensure the the safe and timely registration of pesticides. The industry pays over forty million in registration and maintenance fees under the PREA program to supplement what Congress provides so that there'll be an effective registration and review effort and more predictable and timely evaluation process and worker protection training activities. That's PREA. PREA should be, should be a no-brainer. It was enacted with bipartisan support, and every time it's come up to be reauthorized, Congress has just simply moved it through with that very little debate. It's, it's a success story in a, in a place and time where there's a lot of division and, and fighting going on. So, so Bob, what is the fundamental issue for just a average person, you know, the three people that listen to the podcast uh, every year, at the, uh, you know, what, um, what is the fundamental differences that exist between uh, around funding the federal government? Is, is it that we go to the extremes of holding the budget hostage to bring down spending, and then we look at, you know, the budget that the president, I believe, has delivered, and it doesn't look like it's that much of a reduction in spending. It might be a reallocation of money to different places, but it doesn't look like the budget's uh, going down. I, I think they're putting some some hope in, in that the economy is going to expand and, and then generate more taxes. And hopefully, eventually, you got to believe, put some money in the middle class's pocket. But overall, what's the fundamental issue with funding the darn government? Well, there's no, in, there's no issue funding the government per se. What the, what the word hostage that you used earlier is more appropriate here. <laughs> if you get a piece of legislation, whether it be PREA or the budget, the overall budget itself, that people deem to be must pass, then what happens is other people want to use that must pass legislation to advance an agenda of their own. And when you have 535 members of Congress, there's plenty of opportunities for people to try to do that. And that's what we're seeing here, both with the budget process and also with the pre reauthorization that's been held up so so much recently, is that you know whether you agree or don't agree with the other side, there's a lot of people, a lot of members, a lot of issue groups that want to see other things get put into or get it, get affected by this legislation that other people would normally agree with without any debate. 
So I remember before when we first started these conversations in Hava, I think it might have been just you and me, but Bob, and I, I think it was right when you got hired, Bob, Hava and I started talking. And one of the things that the EPA under President Obama was doing, um, and they got sort of, they got their hand slapped um, uh, by, by a government agency that said, hey, you know, you, you're, you're acting like activists. The EPA took a real activist agenda uh, certainly under President Obama. And I think you would probably say it was anything but uh, activist from that perspective, at least in the same vein, um, particularly around the WOTUS issue. It seems like that issue of expanding that regulatory authority uh, is is now set aside uh, for a little bit, certainly not front burner. Uh, has there been a, um, a concrete decision on that from our perspective, the WOTUS issue? Well, on the WOTUS issue, also called the Clean Water Rule, we're waiting for the Trump administration to put out a, a replacement rule uh, that would take the place of the 2015 rule that we all know and, 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 and have a lot of problems with in our industry. So we're waiting for that to happen. Um, our, our association commented on and is part of the coalitions that work on this issue. We're a leader within our own industry on the WOTUS issue. And when the rule comes out, which I anticipate would be sometime in the late spring of this year, when the EPA issues its rule, we'll be there at the forefront to talk about it and, and make sure that people understand how it impacts the, uh, the industry. The problems we had all along with the 2015 rule with WOTUS, as it's called, is that it was an uncertain rule that would have hurt golf uh, course management because of the way it was written and the way that a lot of our normal activities would have been put under a, uh, a concern and a question mark as to whether they were impacting waters of the United States or not. So, so let me let me get you out of here on this. Uh, but I want to ask you directly. You know, obviously the midterm elections are going to happen uh, this year, and and many times viewed as a referendum on on sort of the the, the new administration and and. And, and I think um, around, particularly around women issues, we see the sort of sea change. And I almost feel like if a, a woman can't get elected this year, it's hard to imagine she's ever going to be able to get elected from that perspective because it's such a, a groundswell. Do you imagine something that uh, really flipped the Congress and Senate, uh, whether it was a, a substantial increase in the female representation or that the... Uh, Democrats, maybe even the uh, extremist liberal Democrats uh, come on board. Do you, do you foresee um, anything that that could really change or is what the Trump administration begun uh, pretty much solidified and, and going to be on a pretty good course uh, over the next two to four years? I, I think your point earlier about every midterm election being somewhat of a referendum on the administration is, is about right. I think that no matter who we're talking about, people who vote for, for their members of Congress in the in the midterms tend to tend to make that a, make that a vote on what's going on across the country. So, I think that this year is shaping up to be no different than any other year. We've had a few special elections already, and um, and there's been some indication of a bit of a groundswell on the Democratic side, but. You know, Republicans are coming out to vote too. So, I think the question really is going to be um, how much the uh, how much how motivated people are going to be to vote as over the next few months, and whether that motivation that we're seeing now continues on through November. Uh, I anticipate there will be some voting. There will be some folks coming to the polls, though. I think there's a lot of passionate people out there, and that's and that's a very good thing. It is. It is. And that's a perfect way to end this segment. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with the folks at the GCSA Government Affairs Office, and we'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, 
top dresses and a men's in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network, and I am joined by the folks at GCSAA's Government Affairs Office, Hava McKeel, Bob Hyland, and Michael Lee. And Michael, the National Golf Day is going to have about 130-some-odd folks, as Hava told us earlier, um, representing a wide range of uh, the industry. Um, but, of course, the, the sort of boots on the ground, the grassroots folks, are our golf course superintendents. And I got to believe that part and parcel of being involved in the National Golf Day means you've gone through the grassroots ambassador program. Uh, tell us a little bit now, how many years are we into the program and how many of the guys uh, that are of the 130 are going to be grassroots ambassador trained? Well, that's right, Frank, and I, and I would tell you that, in fact, that 130 number is really just the uh, amount of folks that are associated with the GCSAA as a contingent of the group at National Golf Day. The overall attendees is well over 200, okay. um, but, but of the uh, folks that are coming associated with GCSAA, we have about 63 of those that are superintendents. Now, not all of, of those uh, 63 superintendents are ambassadors, but a good number of them um, are. I don't have an exact figure for, for you, but we always have strong attendance by our grassroots ambassadors at National Golf Day. They really come enjoy coming to D.C. and not only uh, being a part of the community service project, but going to Capitol Hill as well to meet with um, their members of Congress. Okay, so give us a little, again, a little um, summary for the folks that maybe haven't heard you the two or three other times we've chatted about this uh how long has the ambassador program been in place and and essentially uh what's involved from the boot camp phase what the goals are uh how long have we been at it well the grassroots ambassador program started in the summer of 2014 um the gcsaa was really uh pursuing a way in which we could better connect with members of congress and could do it um, you know, not just during National Golf Day, but really throughout the year and do it back home in their congressional districts. So um, the program's been in place for almost four years now, and it's seen um, steady, consistent growth. We've, we've always got more and more ambassadors joining. Our goal is to have all 535 congressional districts represented by a grassroots ambassador um, by the year 2020. Now, I say 535 congressional districts. Obviously, 100 of those are, are United States senators, but nonetheless, we currently have uh, 323 grassroots ambassadors um, across the country. We have a new ambassador class starting once every quarter throughout the year, and we shoot to have about 20 uh, members be a part of each quarterly class. So uh, we're well on our way in 2018. Last year we had 78 ambassadors join the program. We had 20 ambassadors in our winter class here in 2018. Um, I'm recruiting now for the spring class, so if you're listening out there and you are a class A, B, or C member of the uh, GCSAA, we'd love to have you join the Grassroots Ambassador Program. So, so you said it's been on since uh, 2014, which means now we've got, you know, guys that have been at it, guys or gals that have been at it for, you know, three or four years what have you seen with the folks that were trained uh, early on? You know, obviously it, it involves some sort of an immersion, right? You're immersing, immersing these guys, these folks into um, sort of how do you go about addressing issues and interacting with people who their livelihood is in, you know, policy and regulation? You know, what are the keys to sort of talking to these folks and being effective and developing uh, relationships? Well, what can you say we've learned uh, from the folks who have been at it a little bit already now, Michael? Well, you're right. We have a range of experiences in the ambassador program right now from, you know, those who are involved from the start to uh, all, the, all the way to brand new ones who are who are just joining our, our classes here recently, but uh, we've seen some really incredible strides. I mean, I can think of examples from of ambassadors from you know West Virginia to Nebraska to Arizona, um, Florida, really all over the place who have who have just had incredible um, advocacy outreach with their member of Congress, has really built a strong relationship, and I would think has helped move the needle in Congress in terms of the way golf is viewed. Um, you know, one of our ambassadors from Arizona has had his member of Congress out to his course multiple times, has invited him to, to chapter meetings in the state of Arizona. Um, and, and this ambassador in particular has really gone beyond just his member of Congress has developed relationships with um, 
many other members from the Arizona delegation as well. So um, it's just incredible. In fact, if you if you pick up this month's edition of uh, GCN magazine, um, it has an advocacy feature from one of our ambassadors, Nick Janovich, from the state of West Virginia, who uh, is paired with Congressman McKinley in the ambassador program. But again, Nick is one of those who has really um, done some great things in advocacy and, and has gotten very close with the uh, Senate offices as well, has worked a lot with Senator Manchin and Senator uh, Shelley Moore Capito up there as well. So, I mean, these uh, these connections with members of Congress through our ambassador program are just invaluable. I mean, we know that members of Congress care first and foremost about thoughts and concerns and, and questions from their constituents. That's correct. And so um, at the GCSA, I mean, this is our direct link with members of Congress throughout the country. Right. Now, now you know, Obviously, you're training a fair amount of folks. Um, there's still a number of folks that have to work with the 500 or some odd there. But as I mentioned in the intro, there's also uh, local and regional issues where you have to interact with your state house or your watershed council. Um, you know, the Montgomery County people that were passing the pesticide legislation, the people up in Portland, Maine, and, and Bob Sur- Robert Searle up there, the golf superintendent uh, in Portland, Maine. Um, what have you seen and how is it working, you know, obviously working at the local level, different than maybe at the national level, is, is that the local levels are a little bit more volatile, right? There's a little bit more, feels like emotion uh, involved in things like, you know, the Portland, Maine ban or the Chesapeake Bay uh, thing or the Montgomery County pesticide ban, things like nutrient uh, restrictions that might be going on. How would you differentiate being an ambassador if what you really wanted to do was work on local stuff? Because I can tell you, we got plenty of that in New York, especially with my uh, my brothers and sisters on Long Island in the golf business. That is a uh, increasingly regulated area with a lot of golf on it. So what, well, how can you differentiate between working at the national level, Michael, and working at the local level and how the grassroots thing is going to help? Well, it's a great point, Frank. And, and while our ambassador program is um, sort of built around the federal level just in terms of our pairings with members of Congress, what we've seen is many of our grassroots ambassadors also really enjoy getting involved at the state and local level because those those levels of government can have just as great an impact on their daily work as anything going on at the federal level. And one thing I, I would mention to you that's a little bit different working on the local level is just the speed at which things happen. I mean, as you and, uh, and Bob were talking about, sometimes things take, take quite a while to, to move in Congress. That's not the case at, at the state capitol, no matter where you are. There's often deadlines. You know, maybe you've got a month or two months to get your bill out of uh, the House of Origin. They've got crossover dates, and these things happen very quickly. Sometimes um, the state le- legislature session is only two months, up to six months. There's only a couple, I think, across the country that meet year-round. So the time frames are compressed, and you have to be ready to activate and advocate on very short notice. And, uh, and we really appreciate the quick response that we get from a lot of superintendents engaging on these issues. But that's that's even the case at the local level, too. As you mentioned, Portland, Maine. I mean, we've had um, a number of things we've been working on in Maine. And um, like you said, when you get down to the local level, it sort of becomes hand-to-hand combat and can kind of be kind of emotional as you're stating just because you get, you know, people involved with the city council and that sort of thing. So it's uh, it's something we certainly um, love to see out of our ambassadors getting involved in, in levels of uh, in all levels of government. So, so when you help them develop the skill set, Michael, uh, for working in these uh, environs, be them national uh, or or local. If you had to summarize, I mean, I heard you say, you know, that I'm sure that's a a pretty common thing. You sort of activate your your grassroots network and then you advocate, right? So I guess we can focus on how do you train them to advocate, right? I mean, you know, obviously locally, you want to make sure that. You know, they're not just representing their position, but they also have to see the whole issue from a community perspective because they live in that community. Again, a little bit different at the national level. If you had to summarize, what are some of the key skills that the ambassadors have that, that you you find that they already have because they're really good golf course superintendents or you really want to make sure they have when you're done with them? Well, I would mention a couple of things on the training side of things, we offer um, 
an ambassador boot camp. We've kind of rebranded that as Ambassador Academy. We host that each year at uh, the Golf Industry Show. We did that once again this year and had a great turnout for it. Had a lot of brand new ambassadors this time who were getting involved in advocacy for the first time and uh, picked up a lot of great tips and tricks from our advocate trainer, uh, Stephanie Vance, who we featured this year. Um, so we'll continue to do that each and every year. But now we also offer, and, and this is really key, Frank, we have a new um, curriculum that we're featuring online at gcsaa.org. Now, this content is exclusive to uh, GCSAA members, so you've got to be logged in to access it. But we've got a series of uh, training modules that we now have online. Um, they're in, uh, in Ambassador Basic Training and Ambassador Advanced Training. And it's a series of about eight videos on each module that uh, are kind of three- to five-minute YouTube-type videos that are um, real easy to jump into and, and pick up some some advocacy tips that are accompanied by uh, worksheets and further readings that are kind of tailored to the golf industry so we can make these topics as relevant to grassroots ambassadors as possible. So um, we feel like we offer, you know, a various types of training throughout the year that are very accessible for all of our members, and we hope that ambassadors can take those and, and use them um, in their advocacy. You know, one other thing I would say, um, Frank, that, that we really emphasize is that when our ambassadors are engaging, um, whether it's at the local or state or federal level, that they really have a clear ask in mind. Um, it's important when talking to policymakers that, um, you know, aside from kind of building that relationship and exchanging pleasantries, that you also have a nice, uh, clear ask for them. You, you state very clearly what, what you would like to see happen, maybe with a, a piece of legislation or, or, a, or a city ordinance that's working its way through uh, the city council. And, and one thing that, that we're very proud of on our side is the use of science. I mean, our ambassadors um, attend these meetings and speak with policymakers, and, and all of the issues and the agenda we bring forward is all science-backed and science-based. Um, thanks to folks like you, Frank, who are just doing phenomenal research out there across the country. And, you know, we love partnering with you and, and the various uh, research institutions um, because, you know, if, if we're going to win these policy debates, it's got to be research and science-based. So um, very proud of the superintendents taking that information to policymakers. And, 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 you know, I've been a big fan of the ambassador program uh, since you started again because I really feel like that skill set that you uh, develop uh, with the superintendents is one that, especially knowing that you open it up to uh, assistance as well. I believe you said uh, it's opened up to a, a, B, and C. D did I hear that right, Michael? Yes, that is correct. So that's really good for the young folks that uh, want to get involved in it as well. And listen, as we wrap up today, just like we started out with a general topic on social media, I want to bring up something that might be a little tricky for us all because I know I find myself uh, in this tr in this pr in this predicament sometimes. So uh, let's go uh, start with you, Bob. What happens when you see? Okay, we certainly are an industry that. Um, our partners in the chemical uh, pesticide and fertilizer area uh, can occasionally come under siege uh, for a variety of reasons. And I don't think anybody believes that the long-term uh, shift isn't going to put uh, more pressure uh, on just a regulatory environment and whether we're going to go to a European Union approach to this. But what happens, Bob, when it looks like the public sentiment how do I want to say this? What I'm trying to say is, are there some times when an issue comes up where maybe one of our partners feels strongly that we should advocate for it, but we as an industry say, you know, I'm just not, you know, we're not comfortable uh, talking about that particular issue, you know, for example, with regard to, you know, chemical registration or things like that. Obviously, we want due process and science. Uh, but certainly the public's uh, concern for these things are growing. How do you balance sort of the, the, the for and against uh, components that even guys in our industry can have uh, with the kinds of issues that we, we try to promote, particularly around uh, when it's at odds with certain partners that we might have? Boy, that's a long question. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about, Bob? Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I understand that there's a sensitivity question. It's funny because um, it's a conversation that Hava Michael and I are, are undergoing now, which is how do you prioritize and how do you better prioritize issues through that kind of a lens? And, and we talk about it all the time, whether it's uh, pesticide use or any other or any other policy concern. I mean, I think the first 
the first viewpoint for anything is how does it fit into our priority issues agenda? I think that from our perspective, I know that from our perspective, we, um, we're a trade association, we're responsible to our members, and that's the, that's the issues agenda they put together for us. That's where, that's our members say this is where we want you to be focused on. And so we look at that priority issues agenda, frankly, and we look at everything else out there and we, we view it through that lens. We're beginning, and middle, and end always responsible to our our members, the superintendents. Perfect. Well, I got to say, for as lousy as a question that was, Bob, you answered it well. And Hava, I'm going to give you the last word. Give it to us. Well, I would say we prioritize things within our uh, priority issue agenda. Within the priority issue agenda, we have a singular issue, such as pesticides, Frank, and we go right to our position statement. And we live and die by that. So in pesticide world, what do we care about? Responsible use of products and having tools in our toolbox. And so we're going to work issues that fall into those buckets. We're going to work hard to make sure that whatever pesticides our members are using, they're using it responsibly. Label is the law. And we're going to put our professional development and efforts towards that. On the other side, when it comes to making sure that the EPA is taking a look at the active ingredients that are being used by our golf courses. We're going to make sure that the lens by which that they look at these things is appropriate, and we're going to weigh in with sound science on their decision-making. And this is something that we are doing more and more of. We're being asked by the agency to do this. So perfect. it's rare that we find ourselves in a position where we're conflicted because right. we have a very strong position statement that gives us guidance and support. Excellent. So... Let me let you tell us one more time about the 11th year of National Golf Day. What date and where can they get more information? It's April 24 and 25. The Community Service Project is Tuesday the 24th. The National Lobby Day event on Capitol Hill is the 25th. If you want to get more information about the event, it's at the We Are Golf website. We have a schedule of events there and more information. Now, registration did close on Friday, and we're at near capacity, but if you really would like to come, please register as soon as possible, because we're going to start making Hill appointments for over 130 people starting next week. Is there a website? It's www.wearegolf.org. Hava McKeel, Bob Hyland, Michael Lee, the GCSA's Government Affairs Office. We are in good hands, folks. It sounds like, and I know Hava a long time, long enough to know we are in good hands. Why we call her the smartest person in the turf industry. And here on Frankly Speaking, I'll thank you guys one more time for joining me and joining us here on Frankly Speaking, Smart Talk from Leading Thinkers. Thinkers.